Today on State Scoop's Priorities Podcast from Scoop News Group, overcoming skepticism around cloud. There are some agencies that are jumping in with both feet and kind of embracing it, loving the change. Few others are more cautious. Incentivizing broadband growth in Chicago suburbs. We want to make sure that, you know, in the city of Aurora, there's ubiquitous service that is faster, more affordable. I'm going to repeat that again more affordable than what's currently available by the traditional providers. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world and learn about the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. Los Angeles Unified School District says its networks were targeted by a ransomware attack. Leaders say the attack disrupted several internal systems, including email and other applications. The district says student transportation and class schedules are not affected. BJ Kumar is stepping down as Rhode Island's CIO. Kumar says he's leaving for the private sector, and he'll be replaced on an interim basis by state CISO Brian Tardiff. Kumar spent five years in the role. Vermont CIO John Quinn will depart state government after more than 20 years. Quinn spent the last five years as the state's IT lead and the first secretary of the Agency of Digital Services, which was created to consolidate tech governance across state government. Quinn will take on a role at Government Sourcing Solutions. You can read these stories and more at statescoop.com. You'll also find links in today's show notes. Georgia has a new chief technology officer. Dimitri Kagansky is stepping into the role. He takes it on after the departure of longtime CTO Steve Nichols. Kagansky comes to the job after spending most of the last year as the state's chief cloud officer. Before joining the state, he worked at tech companies in the private sector. Kagansky tells StateScoop's Colin Wood what's next for the CTO role. We do have a list, and I think it's about I think it's like 28 different priorities that we're looking at from infrastructure to application projects <clears throat> to innovation and to cybersecurity and also our broadband fiber optic build out. Um, but right now, I would say the biggest priority for the city of Aurora is on our fiber optic broadband build out. Currently, we have a fiber optic network here in the city of Aurora and one of our partners online Aurora provides services to our anchor institutions and also businesses non-for-profits and NGOs, um, but they do not provide to our residents. So right now we're looking at how we can potentially expand that out to provide service, high-speed, symmetrical symmetrical gigabit services to our 64,000 residential homes, right? Now, keeping in mind the city of Aurora is over 200,000, but that's 64,000 residents the residential home. So I would say that's the biggest thing that we're looking at as part of our smart city um, initiative. And again, just to put that into context, right? um, Our smart city plan is broken up in really four pillars, right? One is how do we make city services more effective? Two is how do we make the city safer from cybersecurity to public safety, physical security, so forth and so on. Three, how to expand our high-speed internet access for residents and organization. And four, it's focused on igniting economic growth, right? So those are the four high-level pillars that we focus on in terms of our smart city initiative. So something like broadband, I mean, it's it's become a, a 
a massive priority for CIOs across the country, regardless of your level of government, regardless of your geography, uh, especially, you know, since the pandemic. Um, so you talked a little bit about that fiber uh, plan and sort of the work that you have going on there. I mean, what does effective connectivity mean to a city like Aurora and, and how how are you sort of in that CIO chair? How are you helping to put some of that stuff across the finish line? Absolutely. Um, great question. You know, and again, so let me kind of take it from a perspective of our objective is to have a more connected city. Right. So we're looking at major expansions to our high speed fiber optic internet work, um, including, like I said, residents access to all wards, specifically the underserved. Right. And expanding to areas like the airport, train stations, outlet malls and those various locations. Right. You know, we want to make sure that, you know, in the city of Aurora, there's ubiquitous service that is faster, more affordable, I'm gonna repeat that again, more affordable than what's currently available by the traditional providers, right? Um, because at the end of the day, you know, fiber is a utility, right? Same way we provide gas, water, electricity, we wanna provide fiber, which I always say is the fourth utility, right? And it is no longer a luxury, it is a necessity, right? And we need to provide that to our residents, our businesses, and the different institutions, because if, you know, the pandemic has taught us anything, is that it is no longer a necessity, right? You need it for the kids to, you know, to be able to connect to school, we need it to be able to do our business, we need it for every asset or aspect of our lives. You talked about the, that affordable piece, um, huge, huge point. Uh, it's something that I know so many people are concerned about. I mean, how, I guess the big question there is how, right? Like how are, how, how can you, how, in your chair, how can you and your role really push for that affordability uh, for fiber and broadband? Absolutely. Hey, you know, the Biden administration just passed a trillion dollar bill, right? To basically help kind of expand out our, our infrastructure. Um, I think you know that money coming down from the federal level through the states to the different state, local, tribal, and uh, territorial agencies, right? The money is there. The question is, what is the model you're going to use to make it sustainable over time? Because you can drop a bunch of money in in the beginning, but that money is going to run out, right? So how do you make it sustainable? And that goes back into the business model aspect and how you manage these ISPs, not, not the traditional ISPs, um, but I'm talking more of the community ISPs, right? The city-owned fiber, the county-owned fiber, and how do you construct a model, and I'm gonna call public-private partnership, that helps put in place a model that can provide sustainable, high-speed, affordable internet fiber to the city, over 25, 30 years and generates revenue that can be pumped back into the community, right? For modernization purposes. And it can offset and subsidize the cost for those underserved and disenfranchised families, right? I know that's very high level and I really got a, you know, a finite amount of time, but you know, 
that's the strategy and the approach, right? I mean, we could probably have a whole nother, you know, session for like probably eight hours and go through the details. But I think you know where I'm going with that, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so let's shift gears just a little bit. I mean, we talked about, uh, you, you talked about building a more connected city, obviously fiber and broadband is a big part of that. Um, you know, you, you've been involved in the smart cities movement, you know, pretty much the entirety of your, your role from the, you know, the, the strategic plan that you, you all put out a couple of years ago to, to, to now, right. This current moment in government, um, how has, from your perspective, the smart cities movement in Aurora changed, uh, how has it, how has it grown? How has it detracted? How, what, where do you see it all going soon? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it it starts with Mayor Irving, right? And his vision for you know what a smart city is and where the city of Aurora wants to go. Every mayor has their vision of I want to increase public safety, I want to promote economic development, right? I want to make sure that we increase education and increase the citizen engagement. But what the mayor has done differently, he said, and technology will be that underpinning foundation to help us to drive these services. Creating the position of the CIO, which is my position now, putting that position under the mayor and the chief of staff and say, now the CIO has a seat at the table because every department and every aspect of the city requires some type of technology touch point, right? And then we say, now, how do we optimize and how do we make things more efficient, right? People always talk about the smart city movement and this, that, but if you ask people, what is that smart city? What does that mean? You get a thousand different answers, right? You know, and from my perspective, I keep it quite simple, right? I think that a smart city is basically any city can earn the label of smart when they use things like information, communication, technology to make the city services run better, to make the city safer, to make the city more connected, and to make the city more prosperous. That's my definition of a smart city. And as you notice, it has nothing to do with technology, right? Because it should be technology agnostic. It's about the people driving that movement. And when we talk about the movement, it's about awareness. The technology folks, we get it, right? And we can sit and talk about smart city things and talk about all the nice little gizmos and gadgets and things like that. But if you got to go back and sell that to a council, to your city council, and you start talking about you know, bits and bytes and ones and zeros, you just go right over their head. So how can I take that conversation translated to say, now I'm gonna tell you how outcomes you're looking for can be driven by technology, but without talking about technology, right? So how can we talk about an outcome-based conversation where everyone can understand, right? And then move the dialogue forward. Right. And I think that's the biggest piece of the smart city movement is education and awareness. How do we get those legislators, those city managers, those mayors, get them to the panels, get them in the fireside chats and say, hey, mayor, what are the challenges you're facing? Right. And how are you tackling those without it becoming, you know, a, uh, a uh, techno bite conversation between two geeks? Right. So awareness, you know getting the word out, creating open dialogue, right? Having a movement that has a social purpose, right? And also outcomes that anyone can understand. Yeah, makes sense. And I mean, since you since you sort of 
you know, embarked on this journey, uh, what have been some of those results and those quick wins at Aurora? Oh my God. Yeah. We can start. I mean, let's see. I think one of the biggest things where, where I'm probably proud of is around our, um, the, um, the space of a STEM, right? That's probably the biggest space where I see the biggest impact to the community, right? And just to kind of give you kind of a very high level overview of that, um, we started our, um, it's called the Aurora STEM Academy, right? It began as a summer pilot for 50 kids um, in the disenfranchised community in 20, let me see, 20, in 2020, during COVID, right? Um, the following year in 2021, it rose to 750 kids, right? Where basically it was a partnership between the city of Aurora, Tinkerworks, which is a K through eight STEM provider, and also APS Training Academy, which does the delivery of the STEM curriculum. And they basically delivered these, well, we launched the Aurora STEM Academy and we delivered STEM courses to 750 kids in 2021, right? In 2022, today, we hit, our target was 1600 by the end of this year, December, uh, December 31st. We've already exceeded that. And we're on target to reach two, 2,000 kids, you know, by the end of the year. Right. So basically, these kids from, you know, K through sixth grade basically have a unique opportunity to explore different interconnections around science, technology, engineering, arts and mathematics in a co-curricular after school program. And for the summer, we did summer programs. Right. So we're exposing these kids to these different uh, programs around building drones, building bots, doing 3D printing doing application development, interactive coding, you know, digital media, you know, robotics and coding, right? So, you know, I like to think of it as, it's, a, it's, it's an enrichment summer program that's basically building pathways for these kids for the future, right? So I'm very proud of that program and it's continuing on. And again, how do we make it sustainable? It's through a public-private partnership, right? Government comes in and supports from a funding perspective, and then I step out of the way, right? <laughs> right? Because government is inherently bureaucratic and slow, right? But we are the conveners. We can convene, right? Get the right partners, the right system, the right consortium, and you can make anything happen. Yeah, that's great. That's that's really incredible growth. That's so cool. Um, I guess to wrap us all up, you know, you're speaking on uh, educational equity, but good good segue there, uh, and, and the digital divide, um, right. at the smart cities expo USA conference in Miami. Uh, can you give us a little preview of what you're bringing to the table and, and also maybe a little bit about what you're hoping to hear from your colleagues while you're there? Right. Yeah. The equity piece, again, like we talked about STEM, right. And I kind of, and, and, and I also touched on the, the fact about the connectivity, right. Cause they go hand in hand, right. You got to have connect connectivity in those communities. So those classes, can be delivered to the kids, right? So my talk will focus on how do we make that sustainable in local government through these different mechanisms, specifically those P3s or those public-private partnerships to deliver these 
long lasting impacts to the community, not one and done, right? But how do we deliver this? And again, in the city of Aurora, we don't manage this, the, I mean, the education, there's six school districts in the city of Aurora and the school districts manage education. The city of Aurora is involved and we have a great relationship and we help fund a lot of these programs, but how do we get those STEM courses back? The ultimate goal is not just get them in the community, but get them into the curriculum at the schools, right? And get the teachers comfortable where they can deliver those uh, programs to the kids. Because again, over 75% of all jobs require STEM skills, right? So we got to focus on how do we make that sustainable over time? And that's going to be my focus during those conversations. Dmitry Kagansky, the new chief technology officer for the state of Georgia. You can read more about him and cloud at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. I'm Jake Williams, host of State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. Next week on the show, Florida CIO James Grant offers an update on where the Sunshine State is in its modernization journey. You can subscribe to the podcast at PrioritiesPodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. As cities emerge from the crisis brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic, the definition of how city leaders define what a smart city is continues to evolve. For some, smart connected technology continues to present big opportunities. For others, it's more bare bones than that. In Aurora, Illinois, a Chicago suburb, CIO Michael Peggy's was one of the more common names on stages in the smart cities movement pre-pandemic. Now the city is taking pandemic learnings and combining them with their smart city strategic plan. Peggy's tells me about the latest in Aurora smart cities journey. We do have a list and I think it's about, I think it's like 28 different priorities that we're looking at from infrastructure to application projects, <clears throat> to innovation and to cybersecurity and also our broadband fiber optic build out. Um, but right now, I would say the biggest priority for the city of Aurora is on our fiber optic broadband build out. Currently, we have a fiber optic network here in the city of Aurora, and one of our partners, Online Aurora, provides services to our anchor institutions and also businesses, non-for-profits, and NGOs, um, but they do not provide to our residents. So right now, we're looking at how we can potentially expand that out to provide service, high-speed, symmetrical, symmetrical gigabit services, to our 64,000 residential homes, right? Now, keeping in mind the city of Aurora is over 200,000, but that's 64,000 residents, the residential homes. So I would say that's the biggest thing that we're looking at as part of our smart city um, initiative. And again, just to put that into context, right? Um, our smart city plan is broken up in really four pillars, right? One, is how do we make city services more effective? Two is how do we make the city safer from cybersecurity to public safety, physical security, so forth and so on. Three, how to expand our high-speed internet access for residents and organization. And four, it's focused on igniting economic growth, right? So those are the four high-level pillars that we focus on in terms of our smart city initiative. So something like broadband, I mean, it's it's become a, a a massive priority for CIOs across the country, regardless of your level of government, regardless of your geography, uh, especially you know since the pandemic. 
Um, so you talked a little bit about that fiber uh, plan and sort of the work that you have going on there. I mean, what does effective connectivity mean to a city like Aurora and, and how how are you sort of in that CIO chair? How are you helping to put some of that stuff across the finish line? Absolutely. Um, great question. You know, and again, so let me kind of take it from a perspective of our objective is to have a more connected city. Right. So we're looking at major expansions to our high speed fiber optic internet work, um, including, like I said, residence access to all wards, specifically the underserved, right? And expanding to areas like the airport, train stations, outlet malls, and those various locations, right? You know, we want to make sure that, you know, in the city of Aurora, there's ubiquitous service that is faster, more affordable, I'm gonna repeat that again, more affordable than what's currently available by the traditional providers, right? Um, because at the end of the day, you know, fiber is a utility, right? Same way we provide gas, water, electricity, we wanna provide fiber, which I always say is the fourth utility, right? And it is no longer a luxury, it is a necessity, right? And we need to provide that to our residents, our businesses, and the different institutions, because if you know the pandemic has taught us anything, is that it is no longer a necessity, right? You need it for the kids to, you know, to be able to connect to school. We need it to be able to do our business. We need it for every asset or aspect of our lives. You talked about the, that affordable piece, um, huge, huge point. Uh, it's something that I know so many people are concerned about. I mean, how, I guess the big question there is how, right? Like how are, how, how can you, how in your chair, how can you and your role really push for that affordability uh, for fiber and broadband? Absolutely. Hey, you know, the Biden administration just passed a trillion dollar bill, right? To basically help kind of expand out our, our infrastructure. Um, I think you know that money coming down from the federal level through the states to the different state, local, tribal, and uh, territorial agencies, right? The money is there. The question is, what is the model you're going to use to make it sustainable over time? Because you can drop a bunch of money in in the beginning, but that money is going to run out, right? So how do you make it sustainable? And that goes back into the business model aspect and how you manage these ISPs, not, not the traditional ISPs, um, but I'm talking more of the community ISPs, right? The city-owned fiber, the county-owned fiber, and how do you construct a model, and I'm going to call public-private partnership, that helps put in place a model that can provide sustainable, high-speed, affordable internet fiber to the city, over 25, 30 years and generates revenue that can be pumped back into the community, right, for modernization purposes. And it can offset and subsidize the cost for those underserved and disenfranchised families, right? I know that's very high level and I really got a you know, finite amount of time, but, you know, that's the strategy and the approach. Right. I mean, we could probably have a whole nother, you know, session for like probably eight hours and go through the details. But I think you know where I'm going with that. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so let's shift gears just a little bit. I mean, we talked about, uh, you, you talked about building a more connected city, obviously fiber and broadband is a big part of that. Um, you know, you, you've been involved in the smart cities movement, you know, pretty much the entirety of your, your role from the, you know, the, the strategic plan that you, you all put out a couple of years ago to, to, to now, right. The, this current moment in government, um, how has, from your perspective, the smart cities movement in Aurora changed, uh, how has it, how has it grown? How has it detracted? How, what, where do you see it all going soon? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it starts with Mayor Irving, right? And his vision for, you know, what a smart city is and where the city of Aurora wants to go. Every mayor has their vision of, I wanna increase public safety. I wanna promote economic development, right? I wanna make sure that we increase education and increase the citizen engagement. But what the mayor has done differently, he said, and technology will be that underpinning foundation to help us to drive these services. Creating the position of the CIO, which is my position now, putting that position under the mayor and the chief of staff and say, now the CIO has a seat at the table because every department and every aspect of the city requires some type of technology touch point, right? And then we say, now, how do we optimize and how do we make things more efficient, right? People always talk about the smart city movement and this, that, but if you ask people, what is that smart city? What does that mean? You get a thousand different answers, right? You know, and from my perspective, I keep it quite simple, right? I think that a smart city is basically any city can earn the label of smart when they use things like information, communication, technology to make the city services run better, to make the city safer, to make the city more connected, and to make the city more prosperous. That's my definition of a smart city. And as you notice, it has nothing to do with technology, right? Because it should be technology agnostic. It's about the people driving that movement. And when we talk about the movement, it's about awareness. The technology folks, we get it, right? And we can sit and talk about smart city things and talk about all the nice little gizmos and gadgets and things like that. But if you got to go back and sell that to a council, to your city council, and you start talking about you know, bits and bytes and ones and zeros, you just go right over their head. So how can I take that conversation, translate it to say, now I'm going to tell you how outcomes you're looking for can be driven by technology, but without talking about technology, right? So how can we talk about an outcome-based conversation where everyone can understand, right? And then move the dialogue forward. Right. And I think that's the biggest piece of the smart city movement is education and awareness. How do we get those legislators, those city managers, those mayors, get them to the panels, get them in the fireside chats and say, hey, mayor, what are the challenges you're facing? Right. And how are you tackling those without it becoming, you know, a, uh, a uh, techno bite conversation between two geeks? Right. So awareness, you know getting the word out, creating open dialogue, right? Having a movement that has a social purpose, right? And also outcomes that anyone can understand. Yeah, makes sense. And I mean, since you, since you sort of, you know, embarked on this journey, uh, what have been some of those results and those quick wins in Aurora? Oh my God. Yeah, we can start. I mean, 
let's see. I think one of the biggest things where where I'm probably proud of is around our um, the um, the space of a STEM, right? That's probably the biggest space where I see the biggest impact to the community, right? And just to kind of give you kind of a very high level overview of that, um, we started our, um, it's called the Aurora STEM Academy, right? It began as a summer pilot for 50 kids um, in a disenfranchised community in 20, let me see, 20, in 2020 during COVID, right? Um, the following year in 2021, it rose to 750 kids, right? Where basically it was a partnership between the city of Aurora, Tinkerworks, which is a K through eight STEM provider, and also APS Training Academy, which does the delivery of the STEM curriculums. And they basically delivered these, well, we launched the Aurora STEM Academy and we delivered STEM courses to 750 kids in 2021, right? In 2022, today, we hit, our target was 1,600 by the end of this year, December, uh, December 31st. We've already exceeded that, and we're on target to reach 2,000 2, kids, you know, by the end of the year, right? So basically, these kids from you know, K through sixth grade basically have a unique opportunity to explore different interconnections around science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics in a co-curricular after-school program. And for the summer, we did summer programs, right? So we're exposing these kids to these different uh, programs around building drones, building bots, doing 3D printing, doing application development, interactive coding, you know, digital media, you know, robotics and coding, right? So, you know, I like to think of it as it's, a, it's, it's an enrichment summer program that's basically building pathways for these kids for the future, right? So I'm very proud of that program and it's continuing on. And again, how do we make it sustainable? It's through a public-private partnership, right? Government comes in and supports from a funding perspective, and then I step out of the way, right? <laughs> right? Because government is inherently bureaucratic and slow, right? But we are the conveners. We can convene, right? Get the right partners, the right system, the right consortium, and you can make anything happen. Yeah, that's great. That's that's really incredible growth. That's so cool. Um, I guess to wrap us all up, you know, you're speaking on uh, educational equity, but good good segue there, uh, and and the digital divide. Um, right. at the Smart Cities Expo USA conference in Miami. Uh, can you give us a little preview of what you're bringing to the table and, and also maybe a little bit about what you're hoping to hear from your colleagues while you're there? Right, yeah, the equity piece again, like we talked about STEM, right? And I kind of, and, and, and I also touched on the, the fact about the connectivity, right? Because they go hand in hand, right? You gotta have connect, connectivity in those communities so those classes can be delivered to the kids, right? So my talk will focus on how do we make that sustainable in local government through these different mechanisms, specifically those P3s or those public-private partnerships to deliver these long-lasting impacts to the community, not one and done, right? But how do we deliver this? And again, in the city of Aurora, 
we don't manage this, the, I mean, the education, there's six school districts in the city of Aurora and the school districts manage education. The city of Aurora is involved and we have a great relationship and we help fund a lot of these programs, but how do we get those STEM courses back? The ultimate goal is not just get them in the community, but get them into the curriculum at the schools, right? And get the teachers comfortable where they can deliver those uh, programs to the kids. Because again, over 75% of all jobs require STEM skills, right? So we got to focus on how do we make that sustainable over time? And that's going to be my focus during those conversations. Michael Peggy, CIO of Aurora, Illinois. You can read more about him in Smart Cities at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. You can also catch him and many others at the Smart City Expo USA event in Miami, Florida next week. You'll find registration links in today's show notes. Amy Tong, California's former CIO, is taking her experience in the IT operations for the state to the governor's cabinet. Tong took over as the Secretary of Government Operations earlier this year, the agency that oversees the State Department of Technology. The promotion represents the growing role of IT leaders in how decisions are made in state houses across the country. Tong talks about what's next for the state. In this role, I oversee about a dozen offices, boards, and departments, including control agencies, big department that support all of state government. And I am continuing a short term as the director of the Office of Data and Innovation, more on those roles in a minute. As you know, we are all making our way out of COVID pandemic, one of the most intense period of my career. As many of you know, I was the state CIO doing COVID meaning I led a department that had responsibility for literally hundreds of technology tools across the state government. Like some of you, I work nearly every day of the week for the first year of the pandemic. And we worked late into the evenings in 2020, helped building, fixed, procure technology tools government leaders needed to understand and respond to the pandemic. One of the more intense time was when we learned the hospitals and clinics potentially be overcome by COVID patients. The state leaders needed to know urgently the capacity of the California hospitals and clinics. And that's where we pull all of the data real time and display in the way that all of the um, leaders could use that information in an understandable manner. The extreme urgency of building that tool and the life and death stakes associated with it was daunting. But it focused the mind and drove us to work harder and smarter. And I believe we all rose to the occasion. We supported the immediate urgent transition of approximately 200,000 state workers to telework, a massive undertaking that involved hard work by every department in the state so that we could sustain state operations. We also supported the urgent need to get technology tools to school children who did not have access to hardware or high-speed internet that it needed for virtual learning. Continues today, a broadband for all initiative in California with a historic investment by the administration and the legislature, a $6 billion that California is gonna have its very own open access middle network to support the last mile connection by 2026. In COVID-19, we also developed a COVID-19 website. That of itself is something extraordinary. We had to do this on the near real time 
and present information available to all Californians. Almost as soon as major decisions were made and the guidance were made, this needs to be posted, including the lockdown orders, the closures, the PPE, the mask guidance, you name it. Unlike other state websites that have come before, the COVID-19.ca.gov website information changed almost daily based on the inquiries we were getting from Californians. In early that part of the pandemic, it got more than 100 million views, which was extraordinary. I'm not aware that we have ever taken that approach on the website design in California, and I am proud of the information we were able to make available there for the people of the state. COVID truly did change how we thought about risk and the speed we could move when we had to, to get projects done. Does that mean I want us to sustain that intensity? No, all of us need time to rest and reflect before charting our new course. We are thinking a lot about how California should move forward, both in terms of technology and in terms of policy and operations. Some of my observations. During the pandemic, the need to collect, understand, and interpret data was critical to state leaders. That need for good data displayed well continues today in state government. It informs our understanding of who is and isn't getting the basic service that we need, what government process can be streamlined, and what outdated steps that are no longer necessary in the digital age. Technology tools, GIS, dashboard, website survey, notification app, virtual vaccine record, all were important technology tools used in different ways for different reasons to support state operation and a clear understanding of what was happening in the state and especially what the people that needed most from us. Technologies move into every facet of state government and we need to continue integrating the power of technology into state operation. But technology is not the magic bullet. Innovation, it's about people. We need to have people embrace risk and change the state policy and operations to grow and take risk, try new things in new ways. We need to design solutions that are tested with real Californians from all walks of life so that we know they work before we deploy them. As secretary, I'm focused especially on three initiatives. Building the state workforce, we need to hire and retain a new generation of employees in this new hybrid work setting, while continue to build a skilled, diverse state government workforce. Sustaining transformation to hybrid workforce, supporting timely implementation of more expensive and resilient state operations continuously measured by key results and creating a culture of innovation, move from being a risk averse culture to one that embraces innovation and change to serve state operation goals. That means leading and supporting the work we do as people to innovate in government, applying technology tools to help us do our work in new ways. Leading government at this level requires managing relationships inspiring innovative thinking and helping people modernize programs and operations. More than 140 years ago, in a laboratory in New Jersey, Thomas Edison introduced his first perfected electric light bulb. 
helping move the country from candles and oil lamps to the wonder and convenience of electric lighting. The light bulb became a household item because of Edison, along with Louis Latimer, who helped improve the filament so it burned for extended period of time and were able to perfect it. And this collaboration changed the way Americans lived forever. I know what you're thinking. What could that possible have to do with the state government in the era of artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, and the metaverse? It has to do with Edison's frame of mind. In his laboratory, there was a sign that read, there is a way to do it better, find it. As we all continue working together to improve state government, I hope you will think boldly and find the ways to do it better. Amy Tong, Secretary of California's Government Operations Agency, speaking at StateScoop and EdScoop's IT Modernization Summit. You can read more about her and modernization at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. You'll also find other sessions from the event on demand. The Priorities Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't already, please leave a review or a rating on the podcast page. They make it more likely that more people will find the show. This podcast is a production of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C., James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped put it together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I am your host, Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.